Hey there, Canada. I'm David Fitzgerald, and I took a left at the valley with Kevin and Karen. I woke up this morning Had a burning deep inside It's like when you're feeling It's all a big lie I feel the pain Well, we're back at Lefted Valley with Kevin and Karen. Karen's not here with us today, but I have, as usual, Nancy. Hi, Nancy. Hey, hi, Kevin. It's always a pleasure to have you, and happy Mother's Day. Absolutely, to every everybody who's a mother or who had one. Well, that pretty much <laughs> includes everybody, I think. Well, I'm so inclusive. Okay, we have a great show today, and we have some great guests that we're going to bring in a minute. I'm not going to bring them right away. But in the meantime, um, Nancy, can you give us that report? You were supposed to have that meeting we talked about last time. Which report was that? You were having that uh, Oh, interfere? that's right. Oh, my mind, my mind was still on, on Mother's Day. Actually, that meeting never came about, and it didn't come about, I think, because of a very interesting reason. I was asked um, through Abbotsford Community Services to um, give a talk to a group of young people who belong to a basketball club. And I uh, spoke to the representative and I said, they want to talk on atheism? And she said, well, they want to talk about diversity. And I thought you would be a good person. So I said, terrific. So I began to think, how are these kids' mothers going to feel? The kids are off to play basketball, and they're sitting there listening you know, to an atheist. So I thought, I really better check with the leader of the group, make sure we're on the same page. So I gave him a call, and it's one, we weren't in the same book, much less on the same page. What he was expecting was somebody to come in and give a short motivational rah-rah, here's the things in life that... Um, coordinate with the things that you're doing in basketball. I could see you do the raw, raw thing. Uh, well, I could do the raw, raw thing, but when I explained to him who I was and what my understanding was, he said, you know, what I think I might do is to have a series on religions, and you're first up. How would you feel about that? I said, much better, because I don't want anyone to think that I was brought in, you know, under a cloud, <laughs> you know, thinking motivation, atheism, they can go together. So it's pending. So I didn't mind being thrown out. I'm being brought in under better circumstances. Fair enough. For me, in the meantime, though, I was actually a judge at a uh, youth movie festival. Oh. Yeah, the, um, you might remember uh, far back in the, some of our shows at the beginning, we had Usha Ramsar come on, and she was talking about Cinema Politica Maple Ridge. We had one here in a mission at Abbotsford, but it never really took. But hers in Maple Ridge really took off. And uh, for the second time, uh, second annual uh, sh- time, I should say, she basically had a youth movie festival. So the youth would actually make a movie, and we were I was one of the judges. And uh, it was really well done. So uh, it's, it's an initi- initiative I hope keeps growing and keeps going on. And uh, uh, hopefully... Some of the time we'll have to bring Usha and talk about it a bit. Well, are, the, are these uh, youth that are part of a college program in mm-hmm. cinematography or just any? Youth. In, any. There, was a, there was one a kid there. He must have been like seven or eight. And he <gasps> really? made a little stop-and-go motion movie and about uh, helping the homeless. It was beautiful. Really? Beautiful, yeah. Oh and some gosh. great prizes, too. First prize was like $500. 
Well, you never know when yeah. someone has a passion and they're that young. You know, you, you, they're going to grow up to be head of a studio or something. But yeah. it, it'll be a passion for them, I hope. We'll have to keep Great an eye for on you. It. Absolutely. So the show today about Mother's Day, but we're also talking about a show, and we're going to call it I Survived Cancer. And we get some great guests here. Um, first of all, I want to introduce them. Got some cancer survivors here, right? <laughs> we got Tanya and John. Guys, welcome here. Thank you for having welcome. us. Yeah, awesome. Welcome. Now, first of all, you guys are totally badass. I gotta say that right, away, <laughs> right off the bat. She's the badass one. She's the one that survived cancer. <laughs> Tanya is a cancer survivor, and John, you're a local artist. That's correct. Can you guys give us a quick synopsis of how you came to be? Oh, not how you came to be, but you know. Oh, you got here! <laughs> it is Mother's Day. It fits. Oh, I don't think we want the conception story. <laughs> okay, so you want to know a little bit about my story? Just a little uh, bit. Just, we'll just get into more details. Dirty? Well, yeah, exactly. Quick and dirty. The Reader's Digest version. Okay, so diagnosed with cancer last June 18th. Um, a very aggressive form of stomach cancer. Went through a nine weeks of chemo surgery. Had a total gastrectomy done. In November, had more chemotherapy, and now I'm free and clear. Awesome. Yeah. And John? Well, I will just, what she said, gastrectomy, for those of you that don't know what that is, that's literally when they cut out your entire stomach. And so uh, that's, a, that's a pretty big deal. Um, I, um, my, my, my last year was a little bit better than that. I, uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a local uh, musician and spent a lot of, um, of last summer uh, supporting Tanya, and as well as at the same time, um, was very busy with um, playing shows and uh, including the Mission Folk Festival, and it was actually a good thing for us to be kind of a distraction from what was going on. Tanya was helping us out with promotion and and doing uh, sales of CDs and everything, all the while going through this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you were moral support for him, let's yeah. just say. Perfect. He was my rock. Hey, excellent. <laughs> he still is. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll go into this. Well, we'll go as our usual with this day in history. Alrighty, this day in history, which as I hope you know by now, a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated the days between April 26th and today, May 10th. Alrighty, first up, um, April 28th was Workers Memorial Day in Canada. It kind of slips by us, but in 1984, it became Workers Memorial Day, which is recognized internationally to respect persons killed or injured in the workplace. And in uh, 1947, on April 28th, a balsa wood raft called the Contiki, if anyone remembers that. If if Liam was here, he would give you a whole synopsis on that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, And a crew of six left Peru bound for Polynesia, and uh, 101 days later, captained by anthropologist Thor Heyerdahl, uh, and he, uh, the, the reason they did it was that Heyerdahl wanted to demonstrate his belief that the voyage was possible using materials and technology of pre-Columbian times. And so that's how the ancient Polynesians could have um, originated in South America. There's a book about it. There's pictures. There was a movie. I think there was a documentary about it at one time. So plenty of material and an extremely exciting event. This is is so weird. I'm, I'm hoping maybe somebody can can help me understand why in 1953 a U.S. patent was issued for an overcoat for two people. 
<laughs> that I looked it up. The, the man who patented it, there was a guy named Howard C. Rawson. I looked him up. I looked for overcoats for two. Why would anybody want a patent for an overcoat for two? Well, you know, today's girth of a lot of people, maybe there's a reason for that. No, I mean, other than Siamese twins, but it's patented. I mean, you know, heaven forbid somebody should come in and want to, you know, start a whole new um, market competition. Yeah, probably not a huge market for that. No, no, I mean, it's just one of those, if anybody knows why um, Overcoat for Two, please email us, ASAP. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, moving on to April 30th, which was tax day in Canada. Uh, Interestingly enough, in 1966, uh, the formation of the Church of Satan um, came about, and that's an organization dedicated to the philosophy of Satanism as codified in the Satanic Bible. And the Church of Satan was established at the Black House, where else, in San Francisco, where else, on um, Waltzport Night. If anybody knows German, that may be a black knight or a... I'm afraid I don't. Yeah. So the guy who started this was a Hungarian whose name was Anton Zsandor Levey. Yes. And he was the church's high priest until 1997, and then it was taken over by uh, some other guys, and the church headquarters was moved to, I love this, Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> Anton LaVey was always a bit of a showman. Always and he, a bit of a showman. He, he, wanted, he wanted to shock people, and he was very efficient doing that. He was very good doing it. And now the, the Church of Satan has nothing to do with the Satanic Temple. We like those guys. No, they're separate. It's absolutely separate. But that, that's kind of a fun fact. Okay, May 1st was uh, May Day. And uh, do you know how May Day started? I really didn't. No. It, oh, it started on the, in the ancient northern hemisphere as a spring festival, uh, public holiday, and it was a traditional spring holiday. So there were a lot of dances, singing, and things like that. Um, and on May Day, May 1st, uh, is also in 1889, it was chosen as the date for International Workers' Day by the Socialist and Communist of the Second International Convention to commemorate the Haymarket Affair. Can you, you, do you remember the Haymarket Affair? No, I just have hay fever. That's all I know. Okay, hay fever, close. The interesting thing is that we always think of May Day as a Soviet holiday with the, the armies marching and so Actually, the, the way that the uh, day started was in Chicago with the Haymarket Affair. And the Haymarket Affair was a riot that came about when anarchists and members of the workers' union got together to march and um, advocate for an eight-hour workday rather than an 11-hour workday, which was prevalent at that time. So, yeah, it's interesting that it goes back to Chicago. But one never associates Chicago with those kinds of revolutions. You always learn a lot of things on this segment. Feel free to jump (laughs) in, guys. You know, you you guys are learning smiling and nodding, but hey. Yeah, no, jump in. Feel free to jump in. Okay, brings us to May 4th, which was Star Wars Day. Oh, May the 4th be with you. 2011, first organized celebration of Star Wars Day, took place in 
Toronto. No but way! You, yeah, you'd think it was going to be Hollywood. It's Toronto. So Toronto can actually be cool for something. It would be. <laughs> yeah. As so, well as being cold. Uh, yes. Okay. So here's the cool part is that this year astronauts on the International Space Stations actually watched Star Wars on that day. <laughs> nice. So that was great. Also, uh, in uh, 1910, the Royal Canadian Navy was uh, created. So May 5th, was Cinco de Mayo, which is giving everybody an opportunity to drink a lot of margaritas, eat nachos, pretend they're Mexican, and so forth. But the day actually commemorated the leadership of um, General Seguin. Um, That's not a typical Mexican name that you love. It, no, it, it, but it is. Um, everybody thinks it's Mexican Independence Day, but actually it had to do with the, the defeat of the French yes. in Mexico. Either way, margaritas and nachos and ole! It's an excuse to party. Party, though. party, party. Absolutely. Um, moving to May 6th, that's Teacher's Day in Jamaica. And in 1937, for you history buffs, that was the day of the Hindenburg disaster. That was the day that the German Zeppelin, which were becoming very popular at that, at that point uh, for travel, international travel, the Hindenburg caught fire and was destroyed within a few minutes while attempting to dock at Lakehurst, New Jersey. And there's a very, very famous radio broadcast of the announcer mm-hmm. absolutely breaking down and, and crying. And you can hear the emotion in his voice as he goes, oh, the humanity, which is sometimes used in parody. Uh, so what people don't know is these blimps used yeah. to crash very often, almost as often as this show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, May 7th is the National Day of Reason in the U.S., which is kind of interesting now that the Republicans have become interesting. We've got to have a day of reason with the conservatives. Uh, yeah, <laughs> good luck it's with a, that. It's a memorial to and reason. <laughs> oh, good one. Good one. <laughs> Love it. Oh, boy, when you jump in, you go in both feet without a life vest. I love it. Okay, the day falls on National Day of Reason on the first Thursday of May every year, and it was created by our friends at the American Humanist Association and the Washington Area Secular uh, Humanist. Um, and that was in 2003. So we, we like that. And the, um, the day asks that the federal, state, and local government entities set aside tax dollars uh, supported in time and space to engage in religious ceremonies. So none of the, we, we really don't want any of the tax monies. We want the secular activities rather than uh, the, the way it's become money, uh, churches being exempt from taxes and so forth. Okay, May 8th was Victory in Europe Day. We just celebrated that. There was a lot on, on TV about that. But um, and I wish Karen was here. You're going to have to tell her, but I'm, I'm glad you're here, Tanya. In uh, 2014, there was a publication um, called From Eve to Evolution by a lovely lady whose name is Kimberly Hamlin. And it's a book I think we need to add to our, our library. I've never heard of this book before. But uh, Hamlin is an associate professor of American Studies and History at Miami University in Ohio. And the book provides the first full-length study of American women's responses to evolutionary theory. And it illuminates the role science played in the 19th century women's rights movement. So Hamlin reveals how a number of 19th century women who were raised on the idea that Eve's sin 
however, you know, forever fixed women in a subordinate uh, status, embraced Darwinian evolution. And they used that, especially sexual selection theory, as explained in, you know, Descent of Man, as an alternative to the creation story in Genesis. So she takes the most powerful women of that time and how they read Darwin, understood the social implications, and then used it to empower themselves to finally, you know, try and reach nice. equal status. And, and That's voting. amazing. It is. It's, it's extremely I haven't read it. We're very pro-empowerment of women in the show. Yeah, and it's one of those things. That, absolutely, it's not one just of, on Mother's Day. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. But that's a good start. <laughs> but um, I, I ran across it by accident, and I haven't read it. But uh, it's coming out in paperback, I believe, this month. It's a little bit pricey. It's about twenty-eight bucks. But there's so few uh, works that have to do with evolution and women's rights and how they actually came together as a natural uh, partnership that um, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and splurge the 28 bucks again. I think I will too. Yeah. Well, oh, there's my girl. <laughs> Alrighty, that brings us up to May 10th. Um, Mother's Day started in Greek mythology with Gaia, who was the personification of the earth and one of the Greek primordial deities. So that's how it started and uh, brings us up to today. So, Kevin, who was your favorite mother in history? Hmm. That is a good question. Um, you know, I've... Uh, you know me, I always try to be a bit flamboyant. I thought at first I could have chosen a legendary woman like Cleopatra. Oh. You know, she reigned from uh, 51 to uh, 30 B.C. And she died, actually. We know that she died on August 12th. Interesting. Mm. Uh, she was a member of the... Uh, Ptolemaic di- dynasty. Uh, she was a family of Macedonian Greek origin, and she ruled Egypt under Alexander the Great uh, during the Hellenistic. Uh, she represented herself as the reincarnation of uh, Isis, the Egyptian goddess. Um, I kind of, I kind of wanted to choose her, I, I guess, a bit f- uh, at first because uh, you know she's 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 not just a, when you think Mother's Day, you know, you think you know, mommy taking care of the kids. But I think it was important because somebody like Cleopatra was much more than that. She was, you know, she was a ruler, she was a politician, she was a, a seductress, she was, you know, all women all the time, right? Uh, so I thought I'd go with her. Uh, but then I, I thought of somebody else that, a bit more modern, like Erin Brockovich. You guys ever Ooh. heard of Erin Brockovich? Mm-hmm. She's also a mother, but she's the uh, activist lawyer that was made famous in the movie, and she was uh, portrayed by Julia Roberts. Uh, she was born in uh, 1960. Uh, she's an American legal clerk and environmental activist who, despite the lack of a formal education in the law, was instrumental in building a case against the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, which is PG&E, of California in 1993. Um, she is the president of uh, Brockovich Research and Consulting, a, con- a consulting firm, and she now works as a consultant for Garrity and Keese, uh, the New York law firm of White and Luxembourg which uh, focus on personal injury uh, and as, uh, claims for asbestos exposure and shine lawyers in Australia. And she's still very active today. And uh, it's one of those unstoppable women that we always talk about here in the, on the podcast. So those are my like ancient choice and a bit more modern choice. Oh, great. Does that 
satisfy your criteria? Oh. <laughs> Karen is not here. She would be proud of me right now. She, she would, would be, be totally proud, be proud of me. No, that's, that's great. I mean, there is no criteria. It has to do with who you think is important. And a lot of times it tells a lot about the mother, but it also tells a lot about you. So I'm proud of you on both, yeah. <laughs> on both counts. <laughs> You're done good, kiddo. <laughs> okay, Tanya, you said you wanted to share too. Yeah. So take the mic over, girl. We're putting right. you a bit on the spot there. But All okay. right, I'm in the hot seat. <laughs> So I'm going to um, choose my own mother, who's uh, been deceased now since 2001. She, um, she came across to Canada in 1945 from Holland with her sister and her mother on a boat called the Britannia. They oh. immigrated to Quebec, where I was born. Dutch. Yes. So if you're not Dutch, you ain't much, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so from the time I was born, she raised me as a single mother. We came over here to beautiful British Columbia and um, just enjoyed it here because it wasn't so cold. Um, but she was a very hardworking woman. She, again, raised me as a single mom my whole life. And uh, she taught me how to be a strong Strong, independent woman, <laughs> which I know you'll job, appreciate. Obviously. Thank you, thank you, and uh, yeah, I just I can't say enough good things about her. She's made me the person that I am today. So, oh. and you're a mom what yourself. A, I'm a mother of four myself. Yeah, I've got uh, a son who's 21, another one who's almost 19, a girl wow. who's nine, and another girl who's seven. So, wow. Yes, you yeah. pay you the compliment, yeah. but then, you know you totally could not tell. <laughs> no. Thank you. You look like a you look like a model. You just stepped off the page of somewhere. Absolutely. Thank you, oh. John. You look great too. <laughs> <laughs> I can't compete with that. Um, that's a wonderful tribute. Thanks. That's a Thank great. You. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. I can, the, the way you're smiling. I can tell that's really from the heart. She was my yeah. best friend, and I she think, still is. She just she doesn't have a body. Is, yeah. She's she's still around. So yeah, she always will. Yeah. Be. Yeah. How about yourself, John? Well, of course, one of my favorite mothers is sitting right next to Aww. me. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> but we're going to be hearing all about her. Uh, uh, very soon. In terms of history, well, I'm thinking very recent history. I'd have to say um, I have a lot of respect for uh, Rachel Notley, the leader of the Alberta um, NDP. Oh, uh-huh. um, she uh, literally rose from um, uh, you know she's been through a lot. She lost her dad in 1984, and uh, she. Uh, she kind of rose from almost out of nowhere and uh, was able to slay the PC behemoth, which had been ruling for the last 44 years. 44 years. Um, and it left the Alberta people bankrupt and had enriched uh, oil companies and destroyed um, massive amounts of environment. In we should the, totally in do a show on that. We should totally bring it back just to do yeah. a show on that. And, totally. uh, and so she just, as soon as I saw her speaking, um, what what was amazing is I could see how even people that were politically uh, not inclined to vote NDP, I could see how her honesty and genuineness came through, and I thought, boy, those PCs are cucked. <laughs> and they were. <laughs> awesome. Who um, would have thought in Alberta, right? So she's a, she's a mother of two, 51-year-old mother, too, that lives in a modest home in Alberta, and a lot of people in Alberta could relate to her. So. Oh, great. Awesome. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks, okay. guys. Yeah, all right. The the woman that I chose, it, it's interesting because we've uh, we've kind of gone all over the map in terms of decades, you know, up to the current time. And the lady that I chose is smack in the middle, and she is a woman whose name is Josephine Baker. Have anybody ever heard of Josephine Baker? Mm-hmm. Josephine Baker was born in uh, 1906 in St. Louis, and she was a black woman and born under very poor circumstances. And um, like Cleopatra, she had it all. She 
uh, was married at 13, and it was very common in those days to marry a young girl to an older man because then she could be the house slave. And she rebelled and went into show business in the States and had a very rough time of it because she was a black woman in a white entertainment industry. So she moved to France and became an absolute sensation. She, um, There are videos of her, Josephine Baker. She was an exotic dancer. Sometimes she danced with a lot of clothes and uh, feathers, sometimes now, not. Now I realize where she was. Pardon? Now I, real, now I recognize the name. Yeah, exactly. And when you see the videos, they, they really are very stylized, so you don't understand what a sensation she was at the time. But she became fluent in French and English. She joined the French resistance and eventually received a medal of honor for the work that she did there but why i chose her as a mother is that after the war she she felt that there had to be a way for people to get along regardless she was i'll tell you in a minute she was a a very strong fighter for civil rights Um, she was married several times and her last husband was a french um, musician And between the two of them, they adopted 12 children, and they called it the Rainbow Tribe. She had children from all over. She had Chinese children. She had white children. She had children of all races, and they all turned out great. There, There wasn't one of them that took all of that fame and being spotlighted and turned into something. No, it was just you know, it was just great. So she did that and then came to the States in the 50s and 60s and fought with uh, Martin Luther King. And she became a friend of um, Grace Kelly's. And so she lived one of these remarkable lives going through through motherhood, through war, through poverty, through becoming the first black woman who fill in fill in the blank. And she lived a remarkable life. And on April 12, 1975, she died in her sleep of a cerebral hemorrhage. And she was 69. So she mm-hmm. she had a full, not, not a rather nice life. Mm-hmm. but uh, Still fairly up, young. Yeah, still fairly young, but an extremely remarkable, remarkable woman. Excellent. Thank you, Nancy. And we'll be right back right after this. Did you ever wonder if there's more to life than what is in the holy books? Do you think you can be good without God? Would you rather think skeptically than rely on blind faith? You are not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. Dude, you're not alone. You're not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. Join us at the Fraser Valley Atheists, Skeptics and Humanists. Be amongst friends. Find us at fvash.com. All right, we're back. Are you laughing at my commercial? I love it. It's genius. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just awesome. I think it's great. All right. Well, we got a full thing, uh, a full board going on there. So let's go down. Uh, since today we're going to be talking about the Mother's Day and uh, surviving cancer, let's go with our things that make you go hmm. Got a nice little story for you guys. I'm wondering what you guys think about this. You guys heard about Val Kilmer? Yeah, who doesn't know Val Kilmer, right? Actor Val Kilmer. Apparently, actor Val Kilmer is apparently refusing treatment for throat cancer because of his Christian beliefs. Oh, wow. Oh. He's a he's part of a, a Christian scientist kind of group. 
Uh, he was taken to a hospital after his neck swelled and he complained of trouble breathing to the point where he goes out wearing scarves to hide the growth on his neck. Uh, as a Christian science follower, Kilmer believes that prayer alone will heal him and refuses medical treatment, even though he's coughing up blood at this point. Bro. You guys have any thoughts on this? Um, good luck, fellow Kilmer. We were, we were actually talking about Bob Marley earlier uh, today, um, that he had was diagnosed with cancer in his uh, toe, and it was treatable, and the doctors told him that if they removed his toe that he would be able to survive, but because of his Rastafarian faith, he decided to seek alternate treatment in Switzerland. Hmm. Um, so that's sort of an example of where you have, you know, faith maybe getting in the way of science. Well, the, uh, sorry, Nancy. No, 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 go ahead. Well, what I wanted to ask you guys is, do you guys think that religious beliefs like this are dangerous, not just for the individual, but for society? Because we're talking about an actor, somebody who's in the limelight, you know, he's a bit of a celebrity, although we haven't seen him for a while. Same thing with Bob Marley, right? And people kind of somewhat look up to these people, mm-hmm. right? Do you think there's a be, there'd be some kind of effect like that? I think there there could there could be. I'm kind of going a little different direction. Unless someone wants to comment on that, I'm going to go off on a little different. Mine is I, if you talk to somebody who does that, I almost want to look at them in the eye and say, and, and what is the survival rate of people who, you know, overcome con- cancer by prayer? In in up in in um, comparison to those that seek medical treatment. Because to me, it would be if someone has cancer and they pray and it gets worse, is there added stress at that point in thinking mm-hmm. that they're not worthy, Absolutely. that yeah. their prayers aren't working? Why aren't they being healed and maybe a cousin or someone oh, yeah. start to question their own religion? It, exactly. And how much does that stress add to the and depression? You know, add to their their not yeah. being able to to rally and doesn't help you help. heal exactly. exactly. If you, you you're thinking all of a sudden that uh, Joe was healed, but I'm not worthy enough because God is not healing me, mm-hmm. <laughs> just it, it, you spiral out of control at that point, right? So, yeah, I think I think a lot of I mean, Tanya and I both have worked in healthcare over the years, and I mean, oh, really? I, I've certainly you seen guys are like. <laughs> I started worshiping you guys. You guys are like awesome. Jeez. Um, I've definitely seen how, you know, people can, I think it is good if, you know, people want to rely on some sort of spiritual belief to kind of get them through a treatment. The dangerous part is where people uh, ignore science. um, And it's not just Christian. We're talking about we had a recent case in Ontario where um, uh, First Nations girl mm-hmm. was denied treatment and eventually and died yes. quite soon after. Yes. Um, I think any time beliefs uh, counter what we know through science. I think I think the idea of, of keeping sort of science and religion separate is, is a healthy thing, um, you know, as, as they've tried in the States. And, you know, unfortunately, it's not working out too great for them because they're blending back together politically. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, from global warming to medicine to um, all of these evolution versus creation, I think it can be dangerous if people choose uh, religious faith over over as, as being superseded yeah. to science. Yeah, a, a cute, cute story, because um, I agree with you, sometimes as, as part of an overall treatment, I have a friend of mine who had a stroke, and which is not the funny part of the story, but she had a stroke, it affected her vision, and when she was at the doctor, so she, she's done everything right, she's gone to the doctor, she's gone for therapy, she's gone for treatment, everything she, you know, textbook so she went to the ophthalmologist 
and the ophthalmologist looked her in the eye and said very dispassionately, you're never going to see again, you know, just you, you might as well get used to it because she said she wanted to drive. And the doctor said, you're never going to, you know, and she looked him in the eye, bless her, and she said, do you know how many people are praying for me in the, in the Fraser Valley? She said, I'm going, to, I'm going to drive, and it's going to be up to me and the prayers, and I'm going to make it. And in that sense, you know, the fact that she could retaliate with the strength, I think in that case, you know, mm-hmm. you, you can't fault, you know, how, how religion is a part of, of her life. Well, I think just the power in having people believing in you and believing in your own strength and you can get through this and you can do this is is very powerful um and i think just loving those cookies (laughs) the will the will to get better is for me from my experience is what got me through it i know i can do this i you know i'm gonna get up today i'm gonna walk down the hall in the hospital four or five times i'm you know and today today is a good day but tomorrow's gonna be even better so for me, it wasn't faith that got me through. It was my own passion and my mm, own drive exactly. to, to you know, put one foot in front of the other. Survival and, instinct. Yeah, 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 yeah. And my kids, and you know, my awesome boyfriend, and all the people that love me in my life. I wanted to, you know, to show them. Look yeah, at me. Exactly. Well, they call me the king of segways, and uh, Val Kilmer showed a little sense in using critical thinking, and we got a little seven-minute blurb from Mark about critical thinking. So let's go right in and go into that. Hello and happy Mother's Day. Today, I'd like to share with you a post by John G. Meserly, PhD, entitled The Essence of Critical Thinking. Critical thinking is careful, deliberate determination of whether one should accept, reject or suspend judgment about a claim and the degree of confidence with which one accepts or rejects it. The problem is that much of our thinking is biased distorted, partial, uninformed or prejudiced. Yet, the quality of our lives depends on the quality of our thoughts. Bad thinking costs us time, money and possibly our lives. Good thinking may be profitable and save our time and lives, but good thinking is hard and takes practice. Cogent or good reasoning consists of 1. Believable premises two, consideration of relevant information, and three, valid conclusions drawn from those premises. Believable premises. This assumes we have some well-informed background beliefs about the world so as to determine whether a premise is believable. No relevant info passed over. We need to avoid the temptation to disregard contrary evidence. Valid reasoning. When the premise supports the conclusion, or, to put it another way, the conclusion follows from the premise, the reasoning is valid. When the premises are also true, then we have a sound argument. Some wrong ideas about cognate reasoning. Good reasoning is not relative to people, cultures, religions, etc. When you violate deductive reasoning, you contradict yourself, and... You violate inductive reasoning, you deny evidence and experience. The way the world works is not relative to people, cultures, religions, etc. Still, self-interest, prejudice or narrow-mindedness leads people to reason poorly. Background Beliefs 
Background beliefs are crucial to determining whether premises are believable and whether no relevant info has been omitted. That is why bringing one's background beliefs to bear often is the most important task in evaluating an argument for cognancy. Ignorance is not bliss. It just renders us incapable of intellectually evaluating claims, premises, arguments and other sorts of rhetoric we are all subject to every day. Kinds of background beliefs. We have beliefs that are both about facts, whether for instance the St. Louis Cardinals won the 1964 Baseball World Series, and values, for instance whether it is a good thing that people play baseball. Beliefs can also be true or false. We need to consistently examine our background beliefs to weed out the false ones. Education, as opposed to indoctrination, helps us to acquire true beliefs and rids us of false ones. Beliefs also differ in how firmly they should be believed. The trick is to believe firmly what should be believed given the evidence and believe less firmly or not at all what is less well supported by the evidence. Worldviews or philosophies Children tend to believe what they are told. Thus, most of us believe, even as adults, what we were told as children. For example, an almost perfect predictor of a person's religious beliefs are the beliefs of their parents. These basic beliefs we might call our worldviews or philosophies. They tend to be the most deeply ingrained and most resistant to amendment of all our background beliefs. We work very hard to keep them. It is crucial that our worldviews, if they are consistent of true background beliefs, contain at least a few modestly well-founded beliefs about important scientific theories. Insufficiently grounded beliefs. Most people have strongly held beliefs about things which they know almost nothing. In order to think well then, we must weed out poorly grounded or false beliefs. It is crucial, if we are to think well, that we have well-founded or true beliefs to support our worldview, since worldviews are like lenses that cause us to see the world in a particular way, or filters through which we possess all new ideas and information. Reasoning based on grossly inaccurate or shallow world views tends to yield grossly inaccurate, inappropriate or self-defeating conclusions. Two kinds of background beliefs. Beliefs about human nature and beliefs about the reliability of information sources. Science to the rescue. The most accurate information comes from the well-established sciences of physics chemistry and biology. The scientific enterprise is an organised, ongoing, worldwide activity that builds and corrects from generation to generation. Absolutely no one starting from scratch could hope to obtain in one lifetime anything remotely resembling the sophisticated and accurate conclusions of any of the scientists. Summary of Critical Thinking Critical Thinking is higher order of thinking as opposed to lower order thinking. Lower order thinking is 1. Unreflective 2. Relies on gut institution and 3. Is largely self-serving. Higher order thinking is 1. Reflective 2. 
uses logic and reason to analyse and assess ideas, and three is consistently fair. More specifically, critical thinking overcomes the most common tendencies of poor thinking, egocentric and sociocentric thinking. Egocentric thinking is characterised by ideas like it's true because A. I believe it, B. I want to believe it, C. I've always believed it, and D. It is in my interest to believe it. Sociocentric thinking refers to the extent persons internalise the prejudices of their society or culture. Such persons A. Uncritically accept their culture is best. B. Internalise group norms without questioning. C. Blindly conform to group restrictions. D. Ignore the insights of other cultures. E. Fail to realise that mass media shapes the news from the point of view of their culture. And F. Ignore their culture's history, etc. In contrast to unreflective thinking, critical thinking is fair-minded and open-minded. To think critically is to reason well. It is the kind of reasoning that is essential ingredient in solving life's problems. Well, that's it from me, and have a great week. Stay sceptical. Alright, we're back. Well, we're going to deal more into the whole cancer thing here. Uh, and we're going to ask a whole bunch of questions, Tanya especially. John, don't feel left out. We love you too. Okay, but before we do all that, you guys ready to let your hair down a bit? Absolutely. Okay, because you know... I'm wearing we'll, a wig, but hey, I'll go <laughs> <with> it. <laughs> you know, whenever I, have, whenever I have some guests here, I uh, usually have this nice little tensy, and Nancy hates it too. And what I do is... Um, uh-oh. You know the song. We have a pop quiz. Oh. Uh, Nancy just hates those pop quiz, but we just love putting you guys through the ringer. My brain just left for a little break. I don't think it's going to come back for 10 minutes, so I'll sit this one out and smile. Well, since the theme of the show is about cancer, I thought I'd give you guys a bit of a cancer quiz. Okay. All right. Uh-oh. This is easy. I've got like four questions. They're multiple choice. Okay. Easy, easy, easy stuff. Yeah, because C. He knows I pick C for all of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you might get one right. <laughs> okay, question one. Uh-oh. What is the proportion of death attributed to cancer? This is, of course, according to the cancer, the Canadian Cancer Society. So, the question is: What is the proportion of death attributed to cancer? And this is in 2011. Is it A. 29.9, B. 19.7, C. 10.1, or D. 5.5? Of course. Hmm. My instinct would be A. 29%? Is that A? A yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah, that's my answer too. You're not participating, Nancy? No, my, when my brain comes back, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let it know. It is A. Yay! It is A. <laughs> the, the B, the 19.7, that's for heart disease, and the 5.5 was for C, uh, cerebrovascular. Oh. Cerebral vascular uh, accidents. Thank you, thank you. I can't, I can't speak about or strokes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Question two: It is estimated that X Canadians are diagnosed with cancer every day. Is it A six hundred, B five hundred twenty four, C three eighty one, or D two hundred one? How many Canadians are diagnosed with cancer every day? I'm going to go with the highest number. You said six hundred. Uh, I'll go with B five hundred twenty four. Nancy, is your brain back? <laughs> 
Well, you didn't take C, John, so I'll take C, I'll take C for you. 381. Well, the question, it is B, 524. <laughs> oh, nice work. 524 Canadians every day Well, I'm are glad diagnosed. it's not the highest number. No. That's good. Hopefully my turn is not coming soon. Question three. Lung, breast, colorectal, and prostate cancer are the most common types of cancers. They account for what percentage of new cases? Is it A, 27, B, 33, C, 52, or D, 44? Lung, breast, and colorectal? Lung, breast, colorectal, and prostate. They're the most common types of cancer. Probably a 54 at least, I would think. Uh, there's a, C's 52. Oh, 50. Mm, I'm going to go with, the, is it 44? 44. Yeah. I was going to do, I'll do yeah. 44 with you. John, you're on fire. It is oh, 52. Wow. But this excludes non-melanoma skin cancer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Jesus, my mic don't like it. Uh, no, question four, last question, guys. Uh, based on 2009 estimates, what are the odds you will develop cancer in your lifetime? Is it A, 1 in 4? B, 1 in 10, C, 1 in 2, or D, 2 in 5? 1 in 4. 1 in 4? I believe it's C. 1 in 2. I'll go with 1 in 4 because the increased toxicity in, in, in environment and in various products. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll be wrong, but that's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you are wrong. I'm sorry. It is, it is 2 in 5. Oh. Apparently, 45% of men and 41% of women, but one in four will die of cancer. So you diagnose two in five, are, uh, you will develop it, but only one in four will die. So that was our quiz. Nice. Perfect. You guys are great. Can, can, I, pre- can I present another fun fact? Sure. Um, so pre-chemotherapy, 90% of people diagnosed with cancer across the board were dead within five years. Since cancer, since chemotherapy was introduced, for those, see, this is for the skeptical and people that are pro science as opposed to whatever therapies that are out there. What is the current um, five year uh, prediction for cancers across the board? So, if you're diagnosed with generic cancer, what is it at now? What does it drop to from ninety percent? Uh, I'll say it'll drop to it'll drop to fifty percent, even less. But I lost track. The percent of people so who were going before to chemotherapy was right. introduced, ninety percent of people diagnosed with oh, cancer okay. were dead within five years. So now, what is it? Seventy-five percent. Thirty. She's very close. Oh, it's wow. about it's about twenty-nine percent. Yay! There we go. There we go. <laughs> I was overly. That the was reason, a bonus question. The reason yeah. I wanted to bring that up is is and this will come up. When, when Tanya was first diagnosed, there was a lot of people saying, don't take that chemotherapy stuff. Mm-hmm. I read this thing on the internet that, you know, this will mm. work. This treatment will work. This I'm not saying don't live a healthy lifestyle, but we also need to think critically and look at, you know, evidence science and evidence. Research, yeah. Yes. You, you fit right in with this show. You really <laughs> I know, do. I, know. I, I just love you right away. <laughs> Well, for our audience out there, um, we talk about cancer today. I guess it's a real question to ask them, what is cancer? Because, you know, we always hear about it. And uh, this is where I wanted to at first is talk about the great big C. And the old folks called it the big C, and I wanted to play the band, but then I thought, yeah, <laughs> that'd be too cheesy. So what is cancer? Uh, cancer is a disease that starts in our cell. Our bodies are made of millions of cells grouped together to form tissues and organs, so muscles and bones, the lungs and the liver. Genes inside each cell order it to grow, work, reproduce, and die. Normally, our cells obey these orders and remain healthy. But sometimes the instructions get mixed up, causing the cells to form lumps or tumors 
or spread through the bloodstream and lymphatic system in other parts of the body. Are you okay, John? Or are you meowing like that? Or is that the cat? I, I think it's my I think it's my stomach. Uh. I would say it's Tanya's stomach. No, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we can't I'm, blame wah, her. Wah, wah, wah. I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> tumors can either be benign, non-cancerous, or malignant, which is cancerous. Uh, benign tumors stay uh, cells stay in one place, and the body are not usually life-threatening. Malignant tumors cells are able to invade nearby tissues and spread to other parts of the body. Cancer cells that spread to other parts of the body are called metastases. Oh, jeez, metastases. Thank you. You're welcome. It's a good thing I got a, a bit of a survivor slash expert here. The slash first nurse. <laughs> <laughs> slash nurse. <laughs> Uh, the first sign of a malignant tumor has spread, metastasized, is often swelling of the uh, nearby lymph nodes. Lymph nodes, uh, But cancer can metastasize to almost any part of the body. It is important to find malignant tumors as early as possible. Uh, most cancers are caused by a change or, in, or damage into the genes. A change in the gene is called a gene mutation. One might think of gene mutation as spelling errors that have not been corrected by gene repair mechanism, which are like spell checkers to look for and fix mistakes. Mutations can affect the structure of the gene and stop it from working properly. And it could go on and on and on. But, we're kind of neglecting our guests here. I'm going to go back to you. So, Tanya, can you, as, as much as you're comfortable mm-hmm. to talk about it, give us your story. All right. So back in January of last year, I, you know, I'll back it up a little bit. I've always been a bit of a health nut going to the gym. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I would have like the odd glass of wine, um, really took good care of my body. Never thought that I would be going through something like this. Um, but anyways, I was experiencing some, some discomfort, kind of felt like I was full all the time. I'd wake up in the morning, felt like I had eaten a whole big meal, which I hadn't. I had some, um, I had some acid secretions and just lots of burping and stuff like that. And I knew that something was wrong. So of course I went to the doctor and doctor prescribes me a little pill, sends me on my way. Of course, the little pill didn't work. Went back again. And at that point he decided to test me for, um, a bacteria called the H. pylori bacteria which I did test positive for. So protocol for that is to take um, a series of antibiotics that are very strong. I reacted to those antibiotics, so I wasn't able to take them. Doctor sent me to a gastroenterologist. He says, oh, I'll send you to the expert. He'll know what to do. So I went to see the expert who decided to scope me, um, you know, have a look down in my stomach. Um, And I was very lucky because at that moment he found a very small area on the top of my stomach that looked suspicious. So he took a biopsy, sent it off, and June 18th when I was sitting teaching my, um, I was teaching carrades at the time at a private college in Abbotsford, phone went off, it was the gastroenterologist, you need to come in immediately. Of course I panicked, I was very, very scared. I went in that day, and that's when um, the doctor looked at me across his big desk and said, you have stomach cancer. So So your symptoms before you got in there, before you actually went to see the first, because, you know, the way, uh, so you said you were burping a lot, Mm -hmm. and you felt always full. Did you have a lot of acid reflux? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Was it, did you pin down to when it was a specific food you were eating, or was it just like all the time? It was all the time. Was it affecting you while sitting up or lying down? Both. Really? Yeah. It was very noticeable. It was something that was out of the norm for me. Because prior to that, the only time I would have acid reflux is if I was pregnant. And I knew very well that I was not pregnant. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, it was very different. Very interesting. Yeah. So a simple visit because of 
what you probably thought was acid reflux yeah. turned to something much more scary. Yeah. yeah. So how long did it take you from going to your GP that gave you the little pill to actually having the scope done? What period of time passed? That's a good question. Um, so originally when I saw my doctor in February, um, well, I seen him in January, but I also saw him again in February when he had ordered the scope to be done. Um, the original scope wasn't to be done until January of this year. I was on a wait list and thank, thank whoever I was able to get in, in, um, when did I go? I went in, uh, February, no. Yeah, I think, I think we were talking and we were. It said one of us decided that she should call the lady June. and said, put, put, put me on the wait list. And I said, you know, because of her age and that, um, you know, after working in the hospital, I know they won't think twice, twice about sending somebody who's already, you know, on their way out for in for a scope, but they'll make somebody who's, you know, 40 years old, mother wait. of four. Yeah, you're young wait, and invisible, wait right? Wait until yeah. January. Yeah. Um, and she actually got bumped to the top of the list, that fortunately. That was in June. Yeah, I got, I got sent in in June for that. So, yeah, so I started my journey in January with my physician, then it was, you know, February, and then the scope in June. So after the scope got done, um, met with a gastroenterologist, and then I got to meet, um, who did, did we meet um, the oncologist first, or was it the surgeon? I no, there was all this confusion initially. Um, she went into the gastroenterologist, or the uh, gastroenterologist, and uh, he basically told her, well, you may have to have part or all of your stomach removed immediately so right. there's a surgeon in surrey that's gonna see you and so you know within a you know a month you know you'll have that out and and even her family doctor said oh you'll probably be back to work in you know july or august um not knowing what the the current the, what the treatment actually was going to be the, what, what it would involve and uh there was tanya had to get on the phone and she had to harass because I had to advocate for Specialists myself. Specialists <laughs> hadn't received the faxes. The surgeon she thought she was going to see was on vacation. And meanwhile, we're, you know, panicking because we just want to get this thing out of her. Yeah. And uh, it just goes to show that people that just sit back and don't advocate for themselves in our healthcare system are going to fall through the cracks. Mm -hmm. So you think about if she hadn't done that, if she hadn't asked to be, you know, put on the top of the wait list, you know, January, it would have been too late. Yeah, um, and it was a very aggressive form of cancer mm -hmm. that I had too. John can go into the science part of it because he loves that stuff. So, <laughs> well, what it what it was, um, I will say we were talking about a heartburn. What you may not know for those of you listeners is five percent of people with chronic heartburn will develop stomach or esophageal cancer. So you see in the you know supermarket, you see all this stuff, tums, and there's a whole industry around that. Well, people that have chronic heartburn, you should get that checked out by your doctor. Um, I guess because with chronic irritation, that can, you know, cause problems. Um, Tanya had a tiny, um, was it uh, one centimeter in diameter? It was 1.5 centimeters to begin with. 1.5 centimeters in diameter on the very inner layer of her stomach. And so um, at that point, we didn't know whether or not the cancer had spread to other parts of her body, um, which is the real danger because you have a bunch of lymph nodes around your stomach and those are kind of like the super highways to your body. So if they get into that lymph node, um, that's why breast cancer is so dangerous. Gets in the lymph node, then it spreads to your body like wildfire. So the real trick with stomach cancer is catching it before it has a chance to get those lymph nodes. So that was the scary part is we did not know how advanced it was. Mm -hmm. Do you wanna... Yeah. 
So, um, okay, 1.5 centimeters. Went to see. So you didn't feel any pain or anything? No, just the heartburn. Just and Yeah, just kind of felt a little odd. Um, so anyways, um, we went to meet the oncologist in Abbotsford who suggested, um, actually, no, it was Dr. Ashrafi that we saw first. Dr. Ashrafi was my awesome surgeon. He was amazing. I can't say enough good things about him. He's in Abbotsford, or Surrey, sorry. Um, and what he said is, um, today the protocol is called the magic protocol. So what they do first is they give you nine weeks of uh, chemotherapy. They give you a month to heal, and then they send you in for surgery, give you another month to heal, and then they top it off with some more chemotherapy well i, I i've got a little question here you, you said your your tumor was essentially about a centimeter right yeah why not go in right there and remove it cut it out yep. why go through chemotherapy first? so it was a very aggressive form of cancer and the best survival rate is to remove the entire stomach and just so you know the stomach is a non-essential organ you can Survive perfectly well without your stomach. How could you, a French woman, say such a thing? <laughs> the ah. only, I can't eat cheese anymore, so that just is awful. You know, poutine and oh, everything. It's like, no, oh, no more no, poutine. No. Yeah, so, um, but yeah, I've learned to adapt very well, which is awesome. So, um, yeah, the chemotherapy was, uh, it was a trip. Uh, the, my very first, I, I mean, I've taken care as a nurse myself. I've taken care of many, many people who have to go through chemotherapy, people who have not made it through cancer. Um, so I was very scared. I didn't know what was going to happen to my body once they started injecting the, the poison inside of me. I was really nervous. I, I was thinking, am I still going to be able to do grocery shopping? Can I still pick my kids up from school? Can I still function as a normal person? Or am I going to be in bed throwing up? The whole nine weeks, I had no idea what to expect. So my first day, I remember sitting in the waiting room, John right beside me, and I just broke down. And I had shaved all my hair off a couple of days prior. I had long, beautiful long hair, shaved it all off, excuse me, um, in preparation to my hair falling out. And uh, a wonderful oncology nurse came out, and she gave me a big hug, and she said, don't worry, sweetheart, everything's going to be okay. And that's all I needed to hear from the nurse, right? So, yeah. Big big transition from being a nurse to being a patient. Oh, I will get into that a little bit more when we talk about my surgery. It just really taught me a lot. Um, I've always, I've never liked chemotherapy, uh, not because it's not effective or not, but I just don't like the idea of it. I wish we just had something better. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. let's, to me, it was always, let's poison you and hope the cancer dies before you do. Mm -hmm. Um, But how did that feel, chemotherapy? Chemotherapy, (laughs) um... The beginning of chemotherapy wasn't so bad. It was okay. It was manageable. But the, the, the thing is with chemotherapy is it's cumulative. So every time you go in for another infusion, you're feeling a little bit crappier than you did the last time. It hits you a little bit harder. I never once vomited. I was never, ever sick. So I was very fortunate that way. But I did feel very tired. I felt very irritable. Um, things were just driving me absolutely crazy that normally I would just brush off. So, um, yeah, it was, it was very interesting. Um, so the first nine weeks, by the end of the nine weeks, I was scared of my upcoming surgery. Um, I was scared of my facing my own mortality. I was scared for my children. I was just in a really, really dark place. Um, and John, who's been awesome to me throughout all of this stuff, I actually pushed him away. 
And I said, you know what? I need to focus on my kids. I need to focus on me. I just need to be alone. You need to move out. And that was a really tough thing for me to do, but it's something that I had to do at the time. Like I just, I feel terrible having done that, but I needed, I needed to just focus on survival. Yeah. Well, it's obvious that John understood. Yeah. Otherwise, I guess he wouldn't be here on the couch with us. Yeah. Well, like the, how I explained it to him, it's almost like when an animal is wounded and they run away to the forest and they growl at anybody that comes near yeah. them. They just want to be alone. Just want to sit in the corner and lick yeah. yourself. And I was worried about him too. I didn't want to have to see him go through losing his partner, right? I just wanted, and with his music being so busy mm-hmm. too, I wanted him to. I think it's a very common thing from people that go through such a a, a trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, you know, you, they're more worried about the people around them mm-hmm. than themselves. Mm-hmm. And that speaks highly even to individuals about how they are as a person. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot. I mean, it's physical, it's emotional. I mean, if you are religious or you're not religious, you still are concerned about your mortality, mm-hmm. your children. It's overwhelming. It I is. Mean, it's, uh, it, it's as much of a uh, emotional journey as it was a physical wellness chemotherapy. Yeah. You know? and Injecting you're... all that worry was just as painful you know, as, oh, the, it's as terrible. The, the drugs. And it's yeah. just the mind. I mean, you just keep going yeah. to these places and you have thoughts that are just reoccurring in your mind all the time. Like you could be, it doesn't matter what you're doing in the day. It's always playing in your, in your head. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's not fun. Tough to gain perspective. Mm-hmm. So, so you see, you you felt you felt the cumulative effect of mm-hmm. chemo. So, so if I was to say, for us, I never got chemo. Uh, if you were to compare it, is it like having the flu? You know, you just like everything no. aches. It's you're like just tired, having tired. the worst hangover you've ever had. Oh, jeez, I don't, I don't drink. Either. And I times, don't know now. Times it by ten, so you feel really tired. You. You, um, for example, you're standing in the shower, having a shower. Halfway through your shower, you need to get out and just sit down because you're so fatigued. Um, you have zero energy to do anything. You're just, you just feel like an empty shell. Like you're just, you can't enjoy anything anymore. You just, you're just. I don't even know how to describe it. You're just a, you're a doing, shell. You're, you're, you're doing, doing it. it. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're describing it. It's, you're yeah. okay. Now, you you can't read anymore. You can read physically. You can. You are able to read, but you see no enjoyment in reading, no enjoyment in watching movies or television. Nothing interests you. It's like you're just a blank slate. When when you were going through this, and I I don't know, so I'm going to ask: Was there any counseling offer? Was there any motivation? Yeah. Did you get any any help? So that- I didn't have any counseling at all. No, yeah. but um, the BC Cancer Agency does have a counseling program for its patients, which is awesome, and I hear that they do really great things. Um, my biggest um, counselor, of course, was John, and also um, a woman. I don't know if you know of her, Biff Naked. She's an artist, a BC artist, yeah. So her and I um, ended up being quite close friends. Um, We would message each other. And she was a phenomenal person, a a great resource for me. Um, I could ask her anything. And she was my biggest cheering Rah rah crowd like she and still to this day, she is just an amazing support person for me because she also went through cancer and is a survivor. So I did not know that. Yeah, she went through breast cancer. Oh, goodness. Wow. So, okay, so you went through chemo and you're feeling like crap. Yeah. And did that reduce the size of the tumor in any way? or did Half, half, yep, half its size. And they still had to go in there and cut it out? Yeah, they did. Yeah. 
Okay. But they couldn't cut just a part of it. They had to remove everything. For my best survival. The reason is, is because <clears throat> stomach cancer, and because I asked that same question, and one of the things is that in Japan and Asia, I believe they developed the surgical advances that they can do that with pretty good survival rates. Um, stomach cancer is much more common in Asia than in North America. Really? Yes. Um, they're not sure why, because of, maybe because of food with high nitrates. They're not sure. But um, they're much more advanced in their, in their um, abilities. But stomach cancer is one of the number one killers of cancer. I believe it's the most uh, lethal cancer um, in North America. And one of the reasons is because in North America, it's usually not diagnosed till it's too late. Tanya is lucky to be diagnosed early. By the time it's diagnosed in, in North America, you know, people might be coughing up blood or they're in, you know, a, a later stage. In Japan and Korea, they have screening programs similar to our mammogram programs that will catch that stomach cancer early. So it's actually doesn't have nearly as high of a mortality rate from what I've read as it does in North America. Interesting. Very interesting. So um, so you went, like I said, you went through the chemo. They had to cut your stomach out. Uh, were they, uh, it, it's such a small tumor. Was, it, was there a reason, did they think that it might just spread through the blood or? Uh... Mm-hmm. Get into the lymphatic system. And that's why they had to remove everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because I, I, I've, course from the canadian cancer society apparently cancer it says cancer can spread in three ways uh it could be they call it invasion which is direct extension the tumor grows into the surrounding tissues or structure um throughout the bloodstream which is they, they call the hematogenous spread which cancer cells break away from the tumor enter the bloodstream and travel to a new location in the body which is very scary to me so that would be your metastases i guess so fancy word or through the lymphatic system, yep. like you said, the cancer cells break away from the tumor and travel through the lymph vessels and lymph nodes to other parts of the body. Mm-hmm. Also very scary. Mm-hmm. So, so they, they just didn't want to take any chances. Right. They said... Yep. So my surgeon was very, very, very um, uh, good at what he does, obviously. Uh, my surgery originally was only supposed to be four hours. Um, it was an eight-hour surgery. And what they did is they opened me up laparoscopically. So my incision, so laparoscope is when they go in with, uh, how can you describe laparoscope? It's when they go, so originally what they were doing, and what up until it, she was actually the first Canadian uh, uh, stomach cancer patient to have this done laparoscopically. Congratulations, what, I guess. <laughs> originally what they would do is just cut you wide open. They call it a shark bite. It's almost like a giant C-section. You know? They just cut you right open, pull the stomach out. They sew your... your uh, your small intestine, which actually does a lot of your digestion, to your esophagus. Um, what this doctor decided right before the surgery is because of Tanya's age, and um, he didn't want her to have a huge nasty scar. So he decided that um, he was going to do a small, it's about a two-inch incision, and then put in different, um, just small, small marks for uh, small uh, poke holes for cameras and basically pull her entire stomach through a two-inch incision and at the same at right after that actually sewing the uh, intestine all laparoscopically using cameras and then she was only left with a very very small um, incision and he just decided but at the same time the other important thing is he has to get all the lymph nodes around Mm -hmm. the stomach for testing so he's able to get over 30 lymph nodes um, out and he said at any time if he thought he couldn't get everything he would have just opened her right up but he got everything he was satisfied 
And uh, he's actually doing a journal article on Tanya specifically nice. because it was a successful surgery. The pathology report came back that the cancer had not spread to any lymph nodes. So that must have really helped the healing process because you didn't yeah, have that. It was minim- minimally invasive. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. The, until they do something associated with Star Wars, the laparoscopic is definitely yeah. much easier on your, on yep. your system. I was in the hospital for 10 days. So. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. And I came home with a feeding tube, um, which I wasn't using. I was only flushing it. Um, but I came home eating... Um, like pureed soups, you know, just very easy to digest things, easy on the digestive system. So, yeah, mm. I did that for a while. And then now I'm eating, I, I eat more <laughs> now than I did when I had a stomach. Let's just put it that way. I need to eat every two hours. Whereas before my surgery, I could go, you know, eat a breakfast and then not eat again till one or two o'clock. But now I have to eat every two hours because I don't have that holding tank, that reservoir. Uh, hold on a second. <laughs> You're telling me that you went through the hospital and survived 10 days on hospital food? No, 10 days on feeding tubes. So I had liquid with an IV oh, okay. going oh, into right. it. Yeah. That, yeah, there's something, I'm very yeah. skeptical of that story now. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I, you're such a heroine, or hero, or heroine, however you want to say it, because you advocated for yourself. I mean, mm-hmm. with John, the two of you didn't sit back and wait you realize that early detection has to follow mm-hmm. up with early treatment yeah. because you know when the when the the health uh, Canada Health and and the um, the Cancer Society say early detection early detection and then you have to sit and wait for six months exactly but when you good point exactly and when you when you advocate for yourself mm-hmm. and be proactive yeah. you got yourself to a point where your tumor remained small exactly and even though it was aggressive. Yeah. They were able to do the treatment and here you are mm-hmm. without saying I'm here with stage four because yeah. although I've I been had, waiting for so that's long, I, I'm yeah. still waiting, you know, 18 months to mm-hmm. see a specialist. I think many people get trapped in that mm-hmm. and partially it's because they they don't i hate i'm not casting blame i'm saying a lot of people don't know Mm -hmm. that they can advocate and i hope that that's one of the things that people who are listening take away of course to be like tanya and do something to to help themselves and it even comes down to um when they order a pet scan so they're ordering your PET scan, you're waiting for that phone call to get the appointment, but you don't hear anything for weeks and weeks. You got to get on the phone and you got to, you know, make some waves and make it happen because things get lost. Papers get lost in the shuffle. So if you don't stand up for yourself and make it happen, you're going to be waiting and waiting. And yeah, and that did happen to us. Yeah. I mean, one of the advantages we had is we'd, we'd worked <coughs> long enough in the healthcare system Um uh, to know that, you know, squeaky wheel gets the grease. Like, um, I'm an occupational therapist. You know, we see a lot of people. If someone calls me, um, like another healthcare professional, is like, can you please go see this person right away? Like, the situation is really urgent. They might have been sitting on my desk as a referral. But, yeah, I'll follow up and, and bump mm-hmm. them to, you know, the top if I if they make a good case for it. Or if a, a client calls me and says, can you please come out? I'm having a lot of trouble. I'm having a lot of falls. You know, it really does make a difference because you're giving that human connection, right? And Tanya always says, you know your body. You know there's something wrong. And if you think that there's something wrong, keep pushing your doctor. Get it checked out. Get it checked out. Yeah. And if you don't like the, the outcome of your visit, go see a different doctor. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Doctors can't handle that. Yeah. 
Can I just uh, quickly talk about um, my experience of being a patient versus being a nurse? So, um, of course, being a nurse is a lot different than being the patient. I never, ever in my life would have thought that I would have been on the other side of the curtain. But here I was laying in this bed. Um, So I learned a lot about being a nurse and the way that I treated my own patients. One of the things that really stood out for me was um, when I was in the intensive care unit, it was a very close um, little room. There was only four or five patients in there, and the um, the curtain was right in front of me. The nursing station was right on the other side. So shift report came. You could hear all the nurses chit-chatting and, you know, giving their reports. But one of the things that really bothered me was I was now considered bed A or the total gastrectomy in bed one. You know, I totally lost my identity. And you know what? I, I got it because I've been there, done that. I was the nurse doing that too, but I I didn't realize how much it impacts the person laying in that bed. Yeah, they, they I guess they, they do this because they don't want to build some kind of attachment, yeah. especially at end of life care between the the nurse and the doctor and the patient. But then all of a sudden you realize when you're on the other end of it, yeah. it's, it's kind of inhumane in a way. Yeah. So here would come my nurse to do her assessment, and I she'd say, "Oh, hi, my name is so and so. I'm your nurse today," and I'd respond with, "I'm bed A," or "I'm the total gastrectomy." in bed one but i do have a name and it's tanya it's nice to meet you you know so yeah i did (laughs) i don't know when that's going to be changed because this goes back i've had discussions and been involved with medical profession over a long period of time i can go back 30 years and the same discussion yeah. And and yet I don't know how it is in school. It's still the total gastrectomy and yeah. bed A. It's horrible. It's horrible. It is. And also too with my nursing practice, I learned about how how to deliver medications in a more human fashion instead of just being robotic and just giving your medications i mean i've i've worked in residential care for many years and i've crushed lots of medications and put them in applesauce and gone to the demented old lady and said oh i've made some apples applesauce today would you like to try it and here's your medication and I had to, I was the one that was receiving the applesauce with the medication in it this time, and it took me a good half hour to have a half a teaspoon. So I, I now no longer do that practice. <laughs> I, think, I think people in the medical profession that become patients become yeah. better oh, at absolutely. communicating. I mean, and it's a shame in a way, but that's the learning experience. Regardless of how much you get when you're going to yeah. school, the learning experience yeah. of being a patient makes you a more compassionate professional. So with all that being said, I have to say that, I mean, as horrible as cancer is, cancer has taught me a lot. It's taught me a lot about life. It's taught me a lot about my nursing. It's taught me a lot about um, uh, just how how you want to live your life. It's made me um, meet a, a whole bunch of really amazing people. And it's really, truly shown me the strength of the human spirit. It's even so, brought you to the show now. It's brought me Look here. Hey. So, Most yeah. importantly of all, it's no, no, brought no, us no, both no. to left of so the really, <laughs> cancer, I mean, cancer is a horrible thing, but it does have its its good things. And that's something that cancer can't take away from you. So You're a survivor. Yeah. Totally. I don't want us to end this without you talking about the Biff Naked concert. Oh, oh sure. Okay, so. <laughs> By all means. So after I was recovering, um, we learned that Biff Naked was playing at the Hard Rock Casino in Coquitlam. 
So John bought some tickets. I was stoked because I just, I've had this relationship with her. I messaged her and I said, I'm going to be at your show. I'm going to be holding up a sign that says F cancer. Tanya says F cancer. (laughs) So we had these seats that were way up high. John says, you know what? I'm going to see if I can get us down on the floor. I'm like, all right. So of course, John being John got us down on the floor. (laughs) I held up my sign. Biff Naked's there chatting away with the audience. And she looks over at me and points. And she says, are you Tanya? And I said, like over a thousand people. Yeah. I'm like, yes, I am. She puts her microphone down. She runs over to me. She bends over and gives me a big hug and a kiss. And she holds my hands and she says, how are you doing, sweetie? And I said, I'm doing well. She stands back up and she tells the crowd, this girl's going through chemotherapy. She's awesome. I want everybody to give her a round of applause. Everybody's clapping, high-fiving me, all these people. It was amazing. All of a sudden, I've got these like Instagram requests of, you know, all these people following me. And yeah, it was really, really cool. And then at the end of the show, her drummer points at me and I'm looking around, who, me? And he's like, yeah, you. He runs over to me, gives me his drumstick. Oh, that is just awesome. That was really cool. Yeah. yeah. That is totally awesome. It was very special. Oh, I wish everybody could be here seeing her face just beaming. Yeah. I get to go see her at the end of the month again. She's playing at the rickshaw on the 29th. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That was an excellent story. Excellent story, by the way. beautiful. Thank you. And, uh, well, you know, you're an inspiration to, to all of us, for sure. I hope that uh, me being on the show can inspire others who are going through something similar. Or I hope so. I it hope doesn't so. have to be cancer-related. It can be anything, right? Yeah, so it, it will. Yeah, I'm sure it just, will. you know what, just remember that tomorrow's going to be a better day, and if you want something bad enough, you'll get it. So think Be- positive. Beautiful. Time for my rant. Well, of course, we're going to be ranting about cancer today, right? Might as well. It's a whole subject. Well, for those of you who have been following this show for a little while, you might realize that um, about this time, one year ago, my father passed away from pancreatic cancer. The man who seemed to be a Goliath of strength and health when I was a child grew rapidly weaker as he entered his senior years. Despite the many chats we had about the importance of exercise and a balanced diet, My father's sedentary lifestyle, his love of alcohol and cigarettes, and his stubbornness about getting medical advice caught up to him. He was only 66. Contrast this with our guest here tonight. And there's a clear lesson here. You're born small and weak. You die small and weak. But how you live in between is up to you. We have a nasty tendency as humans to think that medical science, with the push of a button or a wondrous pill, will cure all. Certainly medical science has come a long way since the rambling of priests blaming curses and demons for all manners of trouble, but we should remember that no amount of medicine can save us from our own responsibilities, and that an ounce of preventative maintenance is worth a pound of cure. There have been countless studies to the point that healthier lifestyle being beneficial to a speedy recovery, and I can only hope this episode inspires you to take up new habits, both physically and mentally. Our guests tonight have shown that with a positive attitude, a goal in mind, and plenty of exercise, you tip the odds in your favor. Nobody gets out of this life alive, but if you improve the quality of your life with a little effort every day, I guarantee it will pay off in dividends. All right. Well, that takes us to the end of our show. Now, before you guys leave... Uh, I want to thank you guys again, and you're welcome to always come back whenever you guys want to. You guys have friends here at Lift of the Valley. Um, 
John, I guess you're an artist. Is there somewhere if people want to know more? If if you don't mind, we're going to close the show with one of your songs, by the Absolutely. way. Absolutely. And uh, in the past, we've had a couple of groups uh, that we've brought on, and we did like a show, and they had like two, three of their songs they actually played in studio for us. Not this studio. We actually went to theirs. And hopefully, we could do the same thing with you. Uh, is there somewhere where people can reach you if they want to find out more about your your talent? Yes, you can go to johnwelshmusic.ca or just Google John Welsh Band and you'll get directed there. And you can check out all the music, where we're playing. Uh, we're playing all over BC this summer, so there will be likely there will be a show near you. And uh, you can check out music samples and our on-the-road music video, which was filmed here on Highway 7 from Mission all the way out to Harrison Hot Springs. You'll see lots of familiar spots if you're from the Fraser Valley. Yeah, absolutely. And tell you, dear, uh, you're an inspiration. Um, any last words of wisdom you want to get out there? Just go out there and kick some ass. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. Well said. Well, that is our show. Um, uh, you can always reach us at, uh, you can follow us on leftatthevalley.com. You can follow us on Facebook or on Blog Talk Radio. If you go to Blog Talk Radio, you sign up. Uh, every time the show airs, it will send you an email and it will let you know that we're airing. Uh, coming up uh, soon, we'll have, uh, we have an interview with Hemet Mehta. We'll be interviewing Matt Dillahunty at uh, Imaginal Religion 5 and Professor Lawrence Krauss. So uh, stay tuned for all that coming up. And I guess we'll leave you guys with... The uh, John Welsh on the road video. Until next time. Here we go now. Is this where you want to be? I'm on the road now. Trying a new scene. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, no, no, no. Does she love me? I don't know anymore. Is it over? Right now I'm not too sure Leaving home now In the early, early morn Got a feeling I've been here before
To find my way back home The colored leaves are Telling me it's far Roll down the window And take a breath of air It's a feeling You can't get anywhere 